0: If you're a parent of one of those who have children who said money will make you happy, we have some seats right up here in front. Um, you move up front. And... No, don't do that because probably my wife would probably be moving down. <laughs> um, hey, so before we we are going to talk about money today, we're taking a break from the series of Hebrews. So if you want to turn to First Timothy 6, um, and we're going to do that just a few times a year, two or three, four times a year, we're going to take breaks from series to do that. Um, but before we do that, Mike prayed for, um, and thank God for our, our veterans, but if you're a veteran or a, a, of the fam- in the family of a veteran, would you please stand, including law enforcement and first responders, would you stand up so we could just thank you? Thankful for all you have done to um, provide for the, some of the freedoms we have as a country. Um, all right, I was also hoping Mike would. uh you know, He usually gives out candy. I was like, if he's got dollar bills, I'm going up there. He's going <laughs> to hand those out. You have a rush of adults coming up here. Um, I have titled my sermon, "God Wants You to Be Really Wealthy." Okay. Um, one, because I think it's really clear from this passage, and two, to kind of perk your interest on a possibly sensitive subject from a preacher in a church to talk about money. So if you turn to First Timothy 6, we're going to read verses 6 through 19. 6 through 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. To keep the commandment unstained and free from a reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the only, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. God, there's not a soul in here that doesn't want to take hold of that which is truly life. But there is a seed in all of us that has a perception of that that will come from what we gain and attain in this life. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work in us in such a way that we can release our grip on false wealth so that we can fight the fight of faith and take hold of Of true wealth, as comes from you, our wealthy God. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, King Tut is one of the most famous Egyptian pharaohs. Many of you know. Uh, He ruled from in the thirteen late thirteen hundreds BC. And he's famous, uh, not because of what he accompli- accomplished in his life. He's famous because they found his tomb in 1922 and, um, of all the immense wealth that was buried with him. 5,398 items were found. Gold and jewels and other artifacts. It took, it's now insured, um, at one billion dollars. It took ten years to, to catalog all these items. And they buried all this treasure with King Tut because they were convinced that he was going to be able to take them with him into the afterlife. Now, let me ask you a question. Was King Tut really wealthy? (laughs) Yes. It kind of depends on what we mean by wealth, right? It kind of forces us to ask, what is the definition of wealth? The, The dictionary... Um, Merriam-Webster defines wealth as an abundance of valuable possessions or money. In which case, the small child that answered is, is true. King, T- King Tut was very wealthy. Uh, the author of the famous book uh, on money, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he adds to the definition by saying there's a difference between being rich and wealthy. He says, the definition of wealth is the number of days you can survive without physically working, and still maintain your standard of living. So he adds to the definition of wealth that the goal of money is so you don't have to work anymore. Um, Is the absence of work a definition of a wealthy person? See, there's an innate craving, I think, in all of us to be wealthy. And I would argue that this desire is is not bad. It's actually God-given. But this passage says... It says a lot about pursuing wealth. It even commands us to do it. But it says that we've got to define what true wealth is. So I would encourage us to listen to God through his word so we can pursue, we can notice the distinction between what false wealth is and what true wealth is. So let's look first at false wealth. False wealth. You want to go to that slide. I'm using the term false wealth because of what's said in verses 9 through 10. There's some pretty awful things said about what wealth could lead you into, into this life in verses 9 through 10. It says it could lead you into where you've, a lot of temptation. If you have a lot of temptation, you know those are pretty, that's a pretty awful thing to have. Um, it uses words like senseless and harmful desires, ruin and destruction, even evil. It describes a pursuit of this wealth as a as piercing yourself with many pangs. I didn't know what pangs were, so I had to look that up. It means a severe emotional anxiety or distress. Which makes me wonder why I didn't, they just didn't put that when they translated it. You know, severe anxiety and distress instead of pangs. But anyway, I'm not a translator. <laughs> With such warnings, though, it's no wonder Paul, he says in verse 9, he says, wealth, it, it can be a snare or a trap. Now, a trap back in this time was mainly used for birds. And you know how it works to the point here. It's something you use something really attractive and it draws something into it. And once they have it, they soon realize this wasn't worth it. This passage gives us three ways that we could pursue false wealth that's actually a trap. Number one, making money your craving. Thinking you need more money than you have now to be happy. Verse 10 is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, as you probably know. Um, most say. Many would say, money is the root of all evils, right? You've heard that said. Of course, that's not what the text said. This leads many people to believe that money is bad. God thinks money is wrong or it's bad to have a lot of it or whatever. But that's not what it says. It says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, money is not the problem. The love of it is. It's interesting that this word, uh, this phrase, the love of money, is one Greek word. And it's a combination of... Uh, Two words, they kind of combine them into one. It's a word for affectionate friend, philos. comes from, um, oh, what's that word? Yeah, the word for love, <laughs> whatever that is. And philos, affectionate friend. And um, another word that means silver or, or money. So it's the f- affectionate friendship of money is what that is. Uh, think of one of your best friends. What are some of the characteristics that marks that best friend as a best friend? There's got to be love or affection. Um, There's probably a sense where you you think about them when you're not around them. You worry about them and what's going on in their lives. You probably feel a sense of obligation to them. See, that's okay to have in a philos relationship with a friend, that type of love. But but we were never, he says, never meant to have that, this word connotates, never meant to have that with money or silver. You're never meant to um, fall in love with your paycheck or a bank account or your savings. You're never meant to think about it when you're not around it all the time. You're never meant to worry about it when you don't have enough and you're not meant to feel a sense of obligation to get more of it. In verse 10, he calls all of that a craving. That word means to eagerly desire something or make something your your goal or purpose in life. And don't you relate with? We get bombarded with thousands of ads through TV and social media, through um, billboards, and even those around us. Maybe coworkers are trying to convince us that we need to eagerly desire something that we don't have. We need to we need to have a craving that drives us to work harder to make more in order to get that thing. And such a craving, he says here, is a trap that is false wealth. That's false wealth. Most everyone knows of John D. Rockefeller is thought to be one of the wealthiest uh, men in modern history. Uh, when he died, he had 1.5%. His assets uh, were equivalent of 1.5% of America's output, which is equivalent of three, $335 billion, uh, um, four times the wealth of Bill Gates. And someone asked him one time in an interview, how much money is enough money? And you probably know the quote. He famously responded, Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Let me encourage you to evaluate your heart in light of this. How much money, how much more salary, how much more in your savings is enough? Is there, is there an underlying craving that whispers to you that you need a little bit more in order to be happy? Because no matter how much you make, 20,000 or 200,000, most of us have to fight this. As we live around people, whatever bracket you're in, that have a little bit more than us. We sense a sense of craving that we need it as well. Just a little bit more to be happy. And Paul says making this, making money your craving, where you think you need more than you currently have to be happy, it's a, it's false wealth and it's a trap. Number two, form of false wealth, making money your identity. Allowing money to define your worth or make you feel important. I get this from verse 17, if you'll look with me. As for the rich, in this present age, he turns to address those who have plenty, plenty of money, more than those who just have food and clothing that uh, he mentioned in verse 8. Which means he's actually, he's talking to most of us here who have a house, uh, a car or two, and um, plenty of food in the refrigerator. Okay, so now he's talking to us. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. In other words, you have, you know you have false wealth when you allow the money that you have to define your worth or really make you feel more important about yourself. I think most of us can relate to this, right? You've been around a group of people that you just walk in and whether it's the, a house that they have, a car that they drive, or the clothes that they have on, you recognize you don't have as much money as they do. You're, um, how, do you, how does that make you feel? I'll admit, sometimes when I've been in situations like that, I'll suddenly have a feeling that I'm not as important as they are <laughs> because of those things. And in the same way, have you ever been around those who have a lot less than you do? Maybe you're serving at a homeless shelter or you're on a mission trip where they have a lot less money. And it just it's so subtle, but there's it's a feeling that, that wells up. Maybe I was a little bit smarter, or, or, or maybe I worked a little bit harder. And um, because of this, I'm just a little, bit, I'm, I'm a little bit more important. Therefore, I'm helping them from a stance of up to down. One of my favorite Christmas movies is called The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. Besides the first scene, I really recommend it. Um, but there is a really neat scene where Cage's character is wrestling with the fact that he he used to have so he used to have so much more money than he does, and now he's in this kind of middle class, lower middle class. He's in a department store and he's standing, um, looking at this twenty four hundred dollars suit, one in which he, he used to be able to buy. His wife comes in the department store and says, "Wow, honey, that looks amazing on you." And he's staring, looking in the mirror. And while he stands looking in the mirror, he, he tells his wife, he said, you know, it's an unbelievable thing. Wearing this suit actually makes me feel like a better person. And you can almost relate with someone in his, in this character, because it might not be a $2,400 suit, but you can probably relate with having bought something new that you really wanted, whether it's a car or a piece of furniture or clothing, and it suddenly makes you feel like a better person. Like... You're more important all of a sudden because now you own this, and Paul says that this is not true wealth if you have that. Defining your identity based on what what you have or what you can buy with it—that's a trap. That's false wealth. Number three, the third form of false wealth. When you make money your security, putting your future hope in how much money you have. It's probably one of the top reasons we work so hard. For money and worry about it when we don't have it. Security. Having money in our savings and our retirement makes us feel like we all of a sudden have a guarantee that that life is going to turn out okay. That it makes us feel like we'll have a safe and secure future. Paul continues in verse 17 and says, It is false wealth if you set your hope on the uncertainty of riches or abundant wealth. Jesus tells a story about a man who did this in, in, in Luke 12. 12. He, he was a man who had an agricultural business, and he has this extremely profitable year. He has so much, it probably sets him up for life. And he's trying to figure out what to do with it all, so he builds bigger barns to store it all up. He says, probably not out loud, but in his heart, he says, soul, have ample goods now, laid up for many years, just relax, eat, and be merry. You know, he had attained the rich dad, poor dad's definition of a wealthy man who who doesn't have to work hard anymore and can still maintain his, his level of, of living, his standard of living. And to be honest, in, in a lot of churches, he probably would be congratulated. Hey, why don't you teach a class on how we can do that? On money management. And Jesus says, of anyone in this situation, so foolish... Your soul will be required of you. And who then will get your stuff that you've stored up? Ruin and destruction. Jesus teaches, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Life, large savings, retirement does not equal a secure, happy life. I don't think he's he's teaching at all not to have retirement and savings as many have interpreted through the ages. The problem is not those things. It's the setting your hope in those things, in what you've stored up. Stored up wealth is uncertain, the text says. It's uncertain for a couple of obvious reasons. One, wealth is relative, right? There's a Boston College study that found that a majority of those who had more than $25 million still considered themselves to be financially insecure, Interesting that they needed a fourth more than they have now to be secure. Uh, The Atlantic Journal did another study with of an average of people who had an average income of $78 million. And they also thought of themselves as financially insecure. (laughs) A majority of them. Isn't that interesting? Wealth is relative. But wealth is also uncertain because it is easily lost. Proverbs 23 says, don't toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist, desist, because when your light, your eyes light on it, it's gone. Suddenly it sprouts wings and flies like an eagle toward heaven. Many experiences truth, because the things like the Bernie, uh, Bernie Madoff scandal, uh, 4,800 people lost 64 million, a billion dollars of their savings just in a flash. Some of us experienced it in the 08-09 uh, recession by losing either a job or housing equity. You know that man, wealth can just fly away so easily. Don't set your hope in it. Our money was never meant to be the object of our hope or security in life. So to trust our future security in it and how much money we have is false wealth. That's a trap. So false wealth, making money our craving, our identity, our security. So let's look at the definition now of true wealth. If that's false wealth, what does it mean to be really wealthy? Verse 5 and 6, Paul comes and says, let me show you what true gain is. Gain there is the word they would use at that time to, to attain profit or wealth. And that's where I gather right off the bat that God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to gain profit and wealth, but then he drops a bombshell on the American materialism and the definition of false wealth. And he says, "With godliness, with contentment, will bring you this gain. With godliness and contentment, you'll have true wealth." We talk about contentment a lot in our family. If you ask our kids, we get them to recite this. If if you're behind our kids right now, you could tap them on the shoulder. And ask them, what's the definition of contentment? And they would say, being satisfied with what you have. Now, you'd probably be interrupting them from grumbling about mom not bringing enough snacks. But, um, (laughs) But that's why we talk about it a lot. Because our family needs to know what contentment is a lot. True wealth is your heart and soul coming to a place of regardless how much you have, where it just or how much you have stored up here, just satisfied. In this passage, I just hear God saying, He's just screaming, I want you to be so happy and so wealthy, where deep in your soul you feel like, I just have enough. If, if I get more, that's great. That's okay. Great. More. If it's taken away, that's hard, but it's okay too. I have food and clothing. I'm satisfied with what I have. That's wealth. It's what Paul describes as he writes in his first imprisonment, his first time in prison. He's writing a letter to the Christians in Philippi, and he says, "I've learned what, in whatever situation I am, I've learned how to be content. I know how to be brought low into a bound in every, in any circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Learn how to be content. Now that sounds great, but let me." Say, so how do you get that? You may be asking, okay, I want that. I want that true wealth. How do we get that? How do we gain true wealth? Let me give you three ways to do this. Number one, we have got to have a craving for God. One that leads us to being happy in God and satisfied with what he has given you. A craving for God. It's so interesting to me in this text that Paul is talking about money in verses 6 through 10. And then he kind of breaks out into this exhortation of like, you know, um you know uh pursue righteousness o oh man of god godliness and, and 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 righteousness and fight the good fight of faith and, and he says these, and then all of a sudden he's so full of passion it's like he gets he gets worked up and he he breaks into worship in verse 15 and 16 i can picture him at his table just kind of lifting his eyes off of his parchment oh god yes he is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords the one who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he's like, you know, where was I? You know, looking back down his parchment. Can you see it? Otherwise it'd be random. I mean, he just breaks into this worship. Time. Oh yeah. Okay. As for the rich in this present age, money, that's where I was. What's going on here? See, I think Paul, what he's doing is he, he's revealing, he's revealing the only true way that our heart will lose a craving for money. And it's when it is replaced with a craving for something bigger and better than it. Have you ever um, played the game called Bigger and Better? I mean, college students probably did. I don't know if it's still played. But when I was in college on a retreat um, down in Panama City Beach with a, I guess that's up in Panama City Beach now, um, with a group of college students. You 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 break into groups, you start off with a paper clip. And then you go into all these stores and things like that, and you say, Can you give me anything bigger and better than this paper clip? They give you something bigger or better. Then you go to the next store, can you give me something bigger and better than this bucket or whatever you got? And the whoever comes back with the biggest and best thing wins the prize. Someone come back with a big, you know, blow-up raft. I think one time somebody came back with a car, they won, you know. Like I don't I can't remember that that may not be true. Uh. <laughs> oh stories. Um then I caught a fish this big, you know. Um but look, Paul says this he says, Look, bring your wealth, your net worth to the table. Bring all your assets to the table in all their apparent glory. Now look at this, he says. Now look at the blessed God. He's so blessed. It just means he's happy. That word means happy. He's the happy God. He's so joyful and happy. You've never been around those people that's so joyful and happy, you just want to be around them more. He said, God's like that. And you should want to be around him. God is the only sovereign. There's no one higher, or bigger, or better. He has all authority to do whatever he wants with his happiness. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the owner of everything. He's the owner of all your wealth. He doesn't need anything else to be content. And God is immortal. And your life and your wealth and your possessions, they're so temporal and all their glory. It's like a flower in a field. It's just going to wither away. But not God. He always was and always is and always will be. He he dwells in unapproachable light, which just means majesty and transcendent beauty. It's everything. It's, It's a thousand times of the beauty of anything you've ever seen on earth. And this is who God is. If you ask your child, look, do you want you want to go to Dollar General and get a little toy? Or do you want to go with the family to a weekend at Disney or at the beach? And if they say, I want the toy, I want a cheap toy, it's because they have a definition, a wrong definition of what is wealth, of what would really make them happy they have weak desires just like a mosquito craves the light of a bug zapper and gets drawn into it so our hearts and minds were created to behold and crave something bigger and glor- more glorious just a paycheck a savings account and if we continue to be attracted to false wealth it's a trap we'll be zapped ruin and destruction and maybe for eternity Created to trade in our heart's craving for these smaller things, crave something bigger and better, which is our blessed and sovereign God. And that'll leave our heart more content and satisfied. True wealth is having this type of craving. Number two, true wealth is having an identity in God and finding our worth and importance from Christ. As we saw earlier, it's false wealth when we allow money to shape our identity and define our worth and make us feel important. But In the midst of this, Paul comes, he says, let me show you what true wealth is. He says, he just his mind ponders Jesus standing before Pilate and Jesus making the good confession. It made me wonder when I was studying this text, what is going on there? And here's what I think he's doing. Because he's pondering one who in Revelation 17 is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the blessed and sovereign one with eternal riches. He says, this one, standing before Pilate, had every opportunity to make a different confession, to give it all up and become king of Israel and attain all riches and glory and power and have thousands follow him. And yet he made a good confession of giving up his riches and glory and becoming unimportant, despised, So that we, with all our craving for money and our discontentment and our grumbling, our trusting and putting our security and hope in our money, all that could be placed onto him. And then the father could punish him as if it was our sin. I asked my six-year-old daughter, Avery, on the way over here, said, I'm going to talk about money today on the way to church today. I said, what do you think God has to say about money? And she says, well, I know that we cannot pay to get into heaven because Jesus already paid for that. I said, that is so true. (laughs) The more we know a happy, sovereign king of kings did this for us, the less we'll put our identity in what we have. You know, he was separated from God. In John 15, Jesus said, he was separated from God and became poor so that he could call us no longer servants, but fill us. His affectionate friends. The one whom he he feels obligated to, the one he thinks about when he he's not around us, as if that was happening. The one whom he loves and he craves. The more we get that, the more identity will be found in Christ and not our wealth, our money. That's true wealth. Lastly, true wealth is finding our security in God. Putting our future hope in what God has promised you. Paul says in the last part of this, verse 17, he said, "Man, just thinking about God, oh, you have an abundance. Look at how, doesn't he richly supply you with all, richly provide you with everything to enjoy? Richly there means full enjoyment based on the satisfaction of your desires. Full enjoyment. apeluu, Full pleasure. True security is found when our heart really believes that no matter how much we lose in this life, no matter how much bigger and better things we miss out on here in this life, that you have such a God who treats you as an affectionate friend and uses his sap. His sovereign happiness to secure your eternal happiness and satisfaction to fulfill those desires for all eternity. When you really believe this, when we believe this, our investment strategy changes. The more we come to experience a craving for God, we put our identity in Him, we put our security in Him, our future hope in what God has promised that He will richly provide us with all things to enjoy, you know what we start to do? We start to do what it says here, we invest what we have to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share. You know, a great example of this is, um, I, I worked for a man as an engineering intern uh, back in college, um, for a man named Alan Barnhart. He had started a craning company in Memphis back in the mid-80s and, um, him and his brother, he wanted to be a missionary, he, um, but his parents wanted to leave this mom and pop business, and so to take, he thought about taking it over and uh, decided to do that, but before he took it over, he said, I want to study what God says about money in scripture. And he says that as he studied it, he, come, he came to see increasingly how much the Bible says about false wealth and that money can be a trap and, and lead to these these things like a love of it and putting your identity in it and security in it it can lead to ruin and destruction. He said, I don't want that. So him and his brother set up a couple of commitments. Number one is to not ever, he said, we're going to set a standard of living that we're never, no matter how good our business becomes, we're going to set a standard of living that we're never going to pass. A modest, middle-class standard of living. Number two, we're going to tell everybody about that um, to get internal and external accountability. Um, And number three, he says, We're going to give all the rest of the money away. And in the first year, they had a really good year. They made $50,000 extra money <laughs> that they were able to give away. And God continued to prosper the business. He says, 25% each year for 23 years. It grew. Where at one point, they were giving away a million dollars a year, and they said, This is not enough. Let's see. Let's pray that God would give more, it would provide more for us to give away. And, and a few years later, they're giving away a million dollars a month, still maintaining the same standard of middle-class living. And if you were to go online later this day and look at his testimony, his name is Alan Barnhart, um, you would see a guy that has found true wealth. This guy doesn't seem poor. Contentment, freedom that he's found in giving money away, The impact he describes is on his family and his children. He speaks like a wealthy man. One who has full enjoyment based on the satisfaction of his desires. Paul says that such a lifestyle, such a life is available to us. No matter how much we make or don't make. He says, you want to be passionate about wealth? Don't invest in the uncertain treasures here. Where moss and rust destroy them so quickly. Go hard. Go hard after real treasure lead to eternal wealth it will not be consumed or be buried with us in a tomb. Randy Alcorn, who wrote the little book some of you read called The Treasure Principle. It's all about pursuing true wealth. He told the story, where I read about King Tut, visiting this, um, this, um, this tomb of King Tut and seeing all his wealth. He said that same day um, they were taken to a grave uh, uh, cemetery a bunch of the of graves of American missionaries that had died in Egypt over the years. He went over to one, a small little tomb, a tombstone of a, a man named William Borden, 1887 to 1913. He'd been a graduate of Yale, heir of a wealthy estate, and he decided because of his love, his craving of God, and as he says, a love of the kingdom of God and a desire for Muslims to experience it. He, um, he gave all that up and he, he went to Cairo, Egypt, to be a missionary. He didn't live very long in Egypt as he gave his life away. He died at the age of 25 of spinal meningitis. And on his tomb is written this. Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Those in the world would look like a life like that and say that's not a definition of wealth. But as we compare this gravesite with that of King Tut, just a miles away, a few miles away, we've got to ask ourselves a question what is the definition of true wealth in light of all of eternity? God wants you to be really wealthy. True wealth. To gain true wealth. Fight the fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. And that which is truly life by pursuing a craving for God, your identity in God, and a security in God that cannot be taken away. Let's pray. What a glorious God you are. And we don't have a, have a tiny picture of what what that glory really is and what it really looks like. And 10,000 years from now, we will catch a little bit more of a vision of who you are and we will be that much more happier and that much more ready to spend 10,000 more years gaining the true wealth of worshiping such a glorious God. Would you help us, as we leave here, have the conviction to loosen our grip on putting our hope in false wealth and fighting the fight of faith and going hard after this true wealth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.